Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor. I'm coming to you this week from Dubai. I have my normal microphone, but it's not working. You might sound, uh, you might notice I sound a little different, but uh, Adam sounds probably as good as he always does. He's in New York as always. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cameron. Okay, so... As always, we have two data points in this episode. We're going to use them to explain the world. The first data point is from the news, and that's $15 billion. That's just one of the many numbers associated with the huge infrastructure bill that just passed both houses of Congress in the United States. It had votes from both parties. They're calling it the big bipartisan infrastructure bill. Joe Biden will probably sign it into law next week. The House has voted on something, and the news more specifically is they have finally passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And it promises significant investments in every pocket of the country, from how Americans commute, with $110 billion for highways, roads, and bridges. The overall cost of the bill is $1.2 trillion, and that includes $110 billion for roads, $40 billion for bridges, $66 billion for Amtrak. But the $15 billion that we're going to focus on right now, that's the amount of money that the law dedicates to making electric vehicles more popular in the United States. That's going to go towards providing electric buses, including school buses for kids, to communities across the country. Then that leaves $7.5 billion, and that's going to go towards building a network of electric charging stations. And by the way... You put these charging stations along, how are you going to see a significant economic development go well beyond the charging station? I feel like we've been hearing electric cars of the future for, for years now, and I was hoping we could discuss how quickly that future might now arrive. But the first question that comes to mind, because I know, Adam, from our conversations otherwise, that you're something of a gearhead when it comes to cars. I was just curious how we should be thinking about electric cars as a technological improvement. I mean, clearly they're an improvement in relation to their environmental impact, but is, is that it? I mean, are there reasons to think electric cars are better than gas-powered cars more generally in some, some fundamental way? I think the short answer is no, we, we wouldn't be doing this, but for the climate crisis, uh, electric vehicles in their current form are still very much evolving, to be honest. I mean, the cost is an issue, range is an issue, charging time, availability of charging stations. And at the same moment, internal combustion engines are really kind of at their peak. The efficiency of the best engines today is truly astonishing. Hybrid combinations of internal combustion and electric have extraordinary potential. Unfortunately, however, all of that improvement of a technological variety has been used in recent decades not to minimise gas, petrol consumption, and thereby reduce emissions, but in fact, just to give us bigger and more powerful and more high-performing cars. And then we've bought more of them. So in the 
US in 1990, there were 193 million registered vehicles. And in 2019, there were 276 million. So we're making this shift because we have a really bad car habit and we're in a climate crisis. And 29% of the emissions of the United States come from transportation, the vast majority of that from cars and trucks. And the data is really similar for the EU. And EVs, electric vehicles, don't by themselves solve the problem because the electricity you charge the batteries with has got to be zero carbon. And currently in the US, only about 40% is. So 20% nuclear, 15% solar and wind and 5% hydro. But EV opens the door to a solution, and that's that's where we're headed. That's why we're going there. And of course, the hope is that electric vehicles like internal combustion will develop. We're only really kind of two decades into their development in their modern form so far. Okay. I mean, so they may not be advanced across the board, but but they are an improvement in terms of their environmental impact of some sort. That raises the question for me of whether an advanced technology of the sort that these electric cars are, whether they necessarily will win out over less advanced technologies. I mean, do these transitions sometimes just fail to happen? Absolutely, definitely. I mean, evolution really is not a recipe for optimal results. That's one of the real fallacies of a certain sort of over-optimistic liberal or just Darwinian thinking about the world. That just doesn't follow. And the absolute classic example of this is something that we all know from everyday life, in the West anyway, which is the QWERTY keyboard, which in many respects is massively suboptimal and unergonomic. And it just has established itself as a standard that generates network effects and that holds it in place. And those network effects aren't just a matter of sort of technical logic. They're also a matter of, of power relations. Like famously, the Detroit auto manufacturers actually bought up local public transport franchises in the US and tore up the tracks of streetcars so as to ensure that you know, superior public transport options just weren't available. And, and when it comes to electric cars, it's all about the charges. Um, right now in the US, there are 42,000 public charging stations, about 120,000 smaller ports around the country. But only 5,000 of those are the super high power, direct current, fast chargers that can charge a car battery in an hour or less. Most of them are what are called level two chargers. That's basically like the sort of 24, 240 volt hookup that you have for a clothes dryer at home in the US. Um, they require about eight hours to fully charge a long range battery. They're much cheaper, however, right? So all of the good economics of EVs comes from using that kind of charger. If you're using one of the high powered ones, you're going to have to pay. The problem is just do you have enough? So in the US, there's 37 charging ports per capita. In Europe, there's 62 per capita. So Europe's far ahead. But the real gap is between everyone in the West and China. So China has 800,000 publicly available EV charging outlets already, and then another million smaller private ports. That's compared to 40,000 and 120K in the US. China totally dominates the EV market, basically. It has one charger for every five electric vehicles. In the US, there's one charger for every 20. The Biden administration's target is 500,000 charging points by 2030, and that's going to be a heavy lift because one of those high-speed, high-powered DC charging stations runs to about $100,000 a pop. So if every penny of the $7.5 billion was spent on DC charges, it would get you 75,000 chargers over five years. 
perhaps 150,000 if you got optimistic with the cost calculations and compare that to China. So in 2020 alone, China installed 284,000 new public EV charging outlets. So that's four times the estimate of what the Americans have just appropriated. It did 112,000 new charging points in just one month in 2020. So far this year, it's done 240,000. That's only three quarters of the year. It could hit over 300,000 easily this year. That's almost 1,000 new charging points per day this year. So the US really, by comparison with those kind of numbers, isn't really even in the race and the Biden administration knows it. So the question in the US is really, where's the solution going to come from? Some people say it could be other funds in the departments of energy and transportation. It could come from private business in the US. Tesla has its own charging network. Another is a thing called Electrify America, which is owned, believe it or not, by VW. And and it's owned by VW because when VW got prosecuted in the courts for fiddling its diesel certification, it was ordered not just to pay a fine of almost $3 billion, it was ordered by the court to invest $2 billion in electric charging infrastructure and the promotion of EV awareness in the US to make good its sins. So you've got Tesla, you've got a German conscript, and you've got half what the Biden administration originally asked for. So it isn't exactly an all-out national push for sustainability and transportation. It sounds like the start to a joke, a joke. So a German conscript, a, a Chinese investor, and, a, and an American politician gone together. But let's just get down to brass tacks a little bit here. I mean, Adam, do you think the days of the gas-powered car are numbered at this point? And, and you know, just so we have some skin in the game, what, what year are we talking? I mean, what point do you think it'll just be seen as strange to be driving a non-electric car around in the United States? Well, at COP26 in Glasgow right now, both Ford and GM have signed to a pledge that will see them producing only zero emissions vehicles from 2040. So Henry Ford actually, uh, 150 years ago in the 1890s, one of his first experimental prototypes was a collaboration with Thomas Edison. That was an electric vehicle. So like 150 years later, we kind of see, I think, the end of the arc in sight. But 2040 is obviously a very long way away. Um, in August this year, uh, the major American automakers backed a Biden executive order that set a non-binding target to reach 40 to 50% electric by 2030. So that's within nine years now. But that depends on the amount of federal investment and the form of incentives that are going to be provided by the public purse to consumers and the support for manufacturers and so on. And none of that's actually really in the trillion dollar bill. As far as the auto manufacturers are concerned, the important stuff is actually all in the other package, the so-called radical bit, the bit that the left wing of the Democratic Party has been hanging on for. That's what Detroit needs to see. In the $2 trillion package, there might be as much as 12500 in credits for consumers to buy electric vehicles, including an interesting provision that you get extra money. You really only get the full amount if you buy a car from a unionized factory, such as GM or Ford, and not one of the non-union plants, which includes Tesla, and Elon Musk has been cross about that. But let's just be optimistic. Let's assume these cars are built to actually kind of get to your scenario, Cam, of like, when will it become normal? That's where you immediately end up back with the chargers. So assume that, you know, Biden's executive order goes into effect and they actually get to 
40%, say, of cars, new cars being produced, how many chargers would you need? Well, the International Council on Clean Transportation, which is a big research group in this field, says that the US at that point would need 2.4 million electric vehicle charging stations to actually meet the needs of that fleet. That's multiples of what funds have just been appropriated for. It's not outlandish stuff. Those are exactly the kind of ratios the Chinese have. So something's got to give. The the sums don't add up here at this point. I mean, this just gets me thinking, could there be like a two-class system? I mean, is that a possible kind of outcome? You have the kind of like, it'll just be sort of déclassé to have a, a gas-powered car. It'll just kind of be where the well-off will all have electric cars and and, uh, and sufficient charging stations, but then the, the kind of less well-off will still be driving gas cars. I mean, is that possible? Yeah, I mean... I think welcome to Palo Alto. I think you know anyone who's anyone there has been seen in a Tesla for many years now. Uh, if, you're, if you're driving internal combustion, you're you're definitely not part of the in crowd. All right. Well, uh, uh, we could all be Palo Alto soon. It sounds like. Um, so, if this transition happens, I mean, it, it does sound like it would be a kind of boon for the environment. Obviously, with the fewer emissions, and it could be good for consumers having kind of new technology at their disposal, but could this be bad for the auto industry as we've come to know it? I mean, are we maybe not taking seriously enough the economic disruptions this transition could cause? Uh, You know, I think, I mean, the auto industry, investors, workers are all taking it pretty seriously, to be honest, right now. I mean, just look at the markets. I mean, Tesla's valued at over a trillion dollars. That's more than the rest of the entire auto industry put together. Uh, this new truck firm, Rivian, that just came, you know, just did its IPO. It was valued at $100 billion. It's barely made any any trucks for delivery to customers. Um, so, no, I mean, the market is out there, you know, focused on this. The existing players in the industry are frantically maneuvering for position right now. The direction of travel seems pretty clear. EV entirely dominates thinking in Europe and the US. It's not true, however, of Asia. So Toyota and Hyundai are still very committed to hydrogen, actually. So that's an interesting technological choice that has to be played out. There's clearly going to be a lot of new growth, a lot of new investment. We're going to need huge battery plants, for instance. But existing factory locations and workforces are definitely in the crosshairs here. I mean, one of the advantages of electric cars, one of the things that makes them kind of uninteresting for gearheads is precisely that they're much simpler. I mean, if you think about an electric engine, right, it's just a bunch of kind of coiled wire whizzing around between magnets. Potentially on the line, it could be 30 or 40% less labor to make one of these. But on the other hand, the cars are more complex. So a VW study, um, you know, concluded recently that about 15% of jobs might be at risk. And that's a huge issue for them because I mean, they employ 675,000. But I mean, I think one thing is pretty clear. If your job is assembling diesel engines, um, you know, it's probably time to be thinking about alternative employment. Uh, we have to take a break. So we'll stop here and come back for the second data point. So welcome back. Our next data point, as usual, this one is not from the headlines, though maybe it should be. The number is 757,000. That's the number of Americans who, by current estimates, have died from COVID and the pandemic. We have 
passed the more than 750,000 mark of the number of people who have died now from the virus. This is the latest data from Johns Hopkins University. So far, more than 46 million people have been diagnosed with COVID. The university says the U.S. has the most cases and deaths of any nation globally. That's a public health failure. It's a political crisis. It's a human tragedy. But I wanted to use this segment right now to think about all of these deaths from an economic perspective. I mean, it strikes me that these deaths are an economic event of their own in a way. I mean, in terms of their direct economic effects, and, but also indirect effects in the longer term. So let's start with the more concrete aspects. I mean, what does the disappearance of this number of people, 757,000, in this short a period of time, we're, we're talking maybe two years, what does that do to an economy in direct terms, Adam? I'm, I'm guessing one of the analogies for this would be after a major war? Yeah, it's quite a gear shift, isn't it, from from electric cars to this. Um, but this is, this is our reality, and I, I think it's absolutely right that we should be talking about it. Um, yeah, I mean, 757,000 dead Americans, you, you struggle to find direct comparisons in American history. So if you go back through the kind of record of American military history, this is more than the combined total of all combat casualties that American fighting men and women have suffered in the history of the country. So 214,000 in the Civil War, 290,000 in World War II. Of course, the Civil War was a medical disaster as well. So we think that the military deaths in the Civil War come to closer to 665,000, but COVID's still larger than that. Then you have to get into relativities, though, because, of course, there were only about 31 million Americans in the 1860s, which gives you a sense of how extraordinarily devastating that war was. But 330 million Americans alive today. So perhaps a more relevant comparison if we're talking wars is the war on terror and the American military suffered 6,700 military killed in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, all told. Um, so COVID is 100 times that. But in the end, the more I thought about it, that, that you know, this isn't really like a war. This is a pandemic. People died at home and in hospitals, not on the battlefield. They're civilians, not soldiers. So the way to think about this best, and it's kind of, dizzying. I've seriously never really kind of done this before. But the best way to think about it is how it impacts the regular business. And I mean that, the business of dying. So in, in 2019, 2.8 million Americans died. And that's kind of roughly how many people die in a normal year. And their dying, of course, doesn't disrupt the economy. On the contrary, it's, once you sort of dig into it, it becomes obvious that it's kind of part of the economy. Right? Because the people who die are overwhelmingly old and at the end of their lives, they're no longer working, they can't travel anymore. So they consume towards the end of their lives overwhelmingly by spending money on ways of easing their transition out of life. Right? And it's funded through insurance or pension systems or private saving. And we actually know these numbers because they're so essential to the healthcare industry. So on average, in the last 12 months of their lives, the 2.8 million Americans that die every year spend $80,000 on healthcare, pharmaceuticals and other care services. And that's a number that people care about because it's $224 billion every single year. 
$150,000 in the last three years of their life. So you ratio that up, that's $420 billion, almost half a trillion dollars. Every cohort that dies every year spends as it approaches the end of its life. It's about 2 to 3% of GDP. It's, it's kind of Astonishing. That's just normal, right? That's as that, and the economy doesn't just, as it were, cope with that. It's clearly what keeps a large part of hospital business alive. So the pandemic is kind of a disruption of that normal scheme, that normal economics of dying. Far more people suddenly were dying suddenly from a disease we didn't understand and couldn't treat, and and that really matters because healthcare is 17 to 18% of the US economy. It's far bigger than manufacturing, right? It's a, it's a giant piece of what rich modern societies do for themselves is basically spend money on their own health, or in this case, on their own dying. And contrary to what you might think, COVID was absolutely terrible for the American healthcare economy. Um, the, the healthcare experts report that in 2020, for the first time since 1960, so in 60 years, for the first time, healthcare spending overall went down during the COVID epidemic. Why? Because all of those other expensive life, you know, end of life treatments and all the other expenses on the healthcare system stopped dead. Dentistry basically didn't function in 2020. And so the stimulus of the stimulus dollars uh, enacted by Congress actually include billions of dollars in financial life support for hospitals where COVID had just completely disrupted the ordinary economics of sickness and dying. That, that is wild, because I, I just need to, need to say that out loud again, that all of the pandemic deaths actually resulted in less money being spent on health care because it disrupted the normal uh, pan- economics of that, that that's 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 wild um that was not the sort of economic effect i had in mind but fascinating to know uh but a huge swath of death of this sort uh, does it contribute to labor shortages uh, would that mean that it's good for workers who, who who are still alive and then i guess on the other hand there are also surviving family members i mean that you mentioned breadwinners who, who who are no longer alive they may have children they could be much worse off in the long term right yeah, I mean, this is, you know, from a historian's point of view, when you look at epidemics, this is, is, this is the key issue. And, and if you're facing a pandemic as severe as, say, the plague that sweeps through Eurasia and hits Europe in the 1340s, you know, you lose a third to a half of the population. Um, it completely disrupts, precisely as you're suggesting, the balance between feudal lords in, in the medieval Europe and, and labour. It's sometimes credited with ending serfdom because it empowered agricultural labor. But those kind of events, mercifully, are, you, know, you know, people say, well, it was great for inequality. Um, yeah, I mean, indeed, but, but half the population died. I mean, they're, they're very, very rare. Um, and COVID was absolutely not that kind of event. If we break the excess deaths down by age cohort to find the people who died who were part of the workforce, then, you know, it's about 120,000 people in prime working age who died beyond what we would expect in a normal year. 30,000 each of Black and Hispanic, hugely overrepresented in that group. 54,000 white Americans of prime working age. So that's between the ages of 24, 25 and 65. Um, So how many active members of the workforce likely died as a result of COVID? 
Well, we know that COVID morbidity in younger people was strongly associated with pre-existing conditions, and it hit minorities hardest who suffer exclusion from the labour market. So in that 120,000 people, you'd probably be generous, assuming 70% of them were working before the crisis hit. So that would be 70 to 80,000 workers who died beyond who, what would normally die in an annual year. That's out of 164.6 million people in the American workforce. So this is one hundredth of one percent of the workforce that died. It's 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 not it's not that kind of a shock. As as far as the labour force is concerned, what made the impact were not the relatively small numbers, if one can say that, of people who died, but the social distancing, the shutdowns, the lockdowns, the entire disruption of the workforce, the collateral damage of people losing childcare what's called the great resignation or the big quit of people just sort of giving up on jobs that were bad jobs and badly paid. Also, higher rates of absentee and, and of course, for sickness, UK data, so a surge of about 30 to 40 percent. Um, and as you were saying, I mean, the, the real impact here is in the families that suffered these terrible losses and in the healthcare system that actually had to absorb the full brunt of this whether the people that were dying were working or not, um, it's the disruption of that system where this really shows up. Okay, so when we talk about survivors, I mean, that gets me thinking about trauma and whether that has economic effects. I, I mean, the marketplace, that adjusts to any circumstance. I mean, that seems like it's very essence. There's supply and demand, prices adjust, etc. But I don't know, the human mind seems like a really different thing. If something terrible happens to you or if you're scared of something for a long time, like we've all been now for the last couple of years, and, and especially people who know someone who's died, uh, they have even greater reason for being anxious. Um, it seems obvious to me that you wouldn't just immediately stop being scared of something just because circumstances change. I mean, is there any literature on the economic effects of societal trauma of this kind? Yeah, at the societal level, we often invoke things like the traumatic memory of hyperinflation and how that scarred Germany, for instance. I have to say at the collective level, I'm always a bit suspicious about this. There is some research at a more personal level which shows that um, amongst policymakers in central banks, uh, the inflation rates that they experience in their youths affect how conservatively they vote on interest rate policy decisions you know, 30, 40, 50 years later. So that's a kind of direct effect. But where all of this really matters, when we're talking about trauma in the economy, where it really matters is at the individual level in the form of mental health. And there's absolutely massive evidence that say childhood trauma, for instance, ripples through people's working lives. I mean, you get into a really, you've sent me in a dark doubt hole this week, uh, Cameron. I mean, like there are NGOs that estimate like that the effects, the lingering effects of child maltreatment in the United States cost uh, over a 12 month period, something like 124 billion dollars you know amongst the 600,000 odd non-fatal cases of childhood abuse and maltreatment you know that the per victim cost over their lifetime is is in excess of $200,000 in terms of you know productivity loss uh, the costs of social work criminal justice because so many of these poor people end up in the criminal justice system special education therapy it's like it's like 
catching diabetes or having a stroke. Like COVID is clearly not the same, uh, but we know it's taken an absolutely huge toll on societal mental health. I mean, earlier this year, the Biden administration appropriated $2.5 billion in funding for states uh, to address the nation's mental health uh, problems in the wake of the crisis. And that's clearly just the tip of the iceberg. Um, the key point here is that there are huge unmet needs in society, all modern societies are in, in mental health. Um, apparently, America in 2019 spent $225 billion on mental health services of different kinds. And other studies show that the rate of return on those dollars, especially when they're directed at uh, folks in precarious and low income situations, is roughly four to one. So, you know, we could we could usefully spend you know, hundreds of billions of dollars more. To think of this as a cost at all as something that detracts from the economy, I think is the mistake. We we should think of these as the sort of high value services that any affluent society, you know, any civilized affluent society that was that was worthy of the title would really be lavishing money on because this is this is where you know well-being and real utility is created yeah and yet amid all of this and despite all of this i keep encountering people talking about a return to normal uh that, that that's sort of around the corner i mean i don't know amid all of this what what is your measure adam for when the pandemic really is over i mean what should we be looking out for how will we know this is over really right now i mean the question doesn't even arise if you look at the global statistics, 6,800 people are dying every single day around the world of this disease. That's only a little below the first peak that hit Europe and the US in April 2020, which is seared into our memories as the maximum point. That's the norm right now globally, 6,800. And in the interim, it's been dwarfed again and again. So these are global numbers, but it's worth remembering that only a few months ago, large parts of the US were at the point of crisis. In Eastern Europe right now, um, the situation is critical. I mean, almost 2,000 people are dying a day across the Eastern European belt from the Baltic to the Black Sea. Severe cases are being medevaced from Romania to Germany and Bundeswehr transport aircraft. And even in Germany, um, you know, the hospitalization rate is surging right now. So I really hope for you, Cameron, that you don't you don't end up in another social distancing um, phase um, in months to come. I mean, uh, yeah, German politicians now for the first time are, are using the word they they vowed not to use anymore. Lockdown. Uh, it's again crossing their their lips. Um, I just hope my kids uh, can still go to school. That's really the main thing in terms of my my personal sanity. But um, yeah, we'll we'll see. It's really a live question. I guess to end with a question that may be a little strange, but do you think there's some economic benefit to, to not returning to normal? I mean, is there knowledge in what's happened through this pandemic? I mean, something that would be lost if we just moved on and returned to normal? Or would, would that kind of be economic self-sabotage? Do we kind of owe it to ourselves to return to normal? I don't think we need to worry about that too much. I mean, if you look at global consumer and investment figures, it's been astonishing how rapidly they've bounced back. I mean, I think no one really anticipated how quickly it would come, economic activity would rebound in many, most places around the world. You know, even sectors like the global travel business, which are still, I think, in a state of uncertainty coming the season for next year, you know, is, is still in the balance. But the desire to travel is, is clearly is clearly there. I mean, it absolutely behooves us, obviously, as after you know the nine eleven attacks and other moments like that, to grieve and commemorate those who died and and ask 
hard questions about you know why these unnecessary deaths happened and and uh, the side responsibility. But I mean, the crucial thing where we would really self sabotage is if we lost sight of the operational knowledge. Right, which still matters, um, which is how to react quickly enough and how to cope. Uh, and that really is all the more important because it's far too soon to let our guard down, right? We, we are absolutely not out of the woods yet. Yeah, as you said, we're, we're still in the thick of it. And so, yeah, we do still need the knowledge right now. I'm hoping you guys avoid a lockdown over there and I'll keep hoping that that's the case over here. Uh, yeah, Adam, thank you for indulging the topic. I know it's not the most cheerful, but I don't know. I, I think it was pretty fascinating. So Ones and Twos is written and produced by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos, Rob Sachs, and Laura rossbrow Tellum edit our episodes. Dan Efron is the head of audio at FP. If you want to learn more about what we're talking about, check out the links from today's podcast at our website, foreignpolicy.com, or follow us on Twitter at Ones and Twos Pod. Those of you with episode ideas, we'd love to hear them. Tweet them at us or email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. Finally, if you like the show, subscribe to the podcast. Write us a review. Both those things really help. Thank you, and we'll be back in your feed next week.